Bibles to the book of John. We actually are taking our text from three different places today. Um, from the book of John, chapter 5, and then we're going to go to John, chapter 8, and then Romans, chapter 8. So this is, if you're a guest here today, this is the portion of our service called Deeper Waters, and uh, it's, it's about 20 minutes long. It's a short Bible study. We try to go deeper into the Word through this Bible study, and uh, we hope that it's, it's a blessing to you. We've been doing a series on the new birth experience. Today, we're going to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So from the book of John chapter 5, and we're going to begin reading in verse 32, says, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Then to the book of John chapter 8, verse 17, says, It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bears witness of myself, and the Father that sent me bears witness of me. So Jesus is referencing an Old Testament law that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. So if somebody were to accuse you of something under the law of Moses, then they had to have at least two accusers. Paul used that same principle to apply to Scripture, that you can't just pluck out one Scripture and say, well, here it is, this is our doctrine, you know, Romans 10, 9, that's all we got, or, and, or one, one single verse, and say, this is it, this is our doctrine. But it has to come from the testimony of, of all the scripture, okay? So, so Jesus is using the same principle to say, my identity of who I am is true because there's at least two witnesses, okay? So that's what he's talking about, the spirit bore witness of Jesus at his baptism. Remember, when he went down into the water, he came up, and the voice said, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. Now look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 16. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So here's the thing. Last week we talked about how we, we talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit a little bit. And, and the whole point of last week is that nobody in Christianity would argue that to be in the body of Christ, you have to be filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Nobody would ever argue that, whether it's a Baptist or, or even, even Catholics. Nobody would ever argue that, no, no, no theologian at least, except for one particular group of people, which I'll get to in just a second. But, but the argument is, how does it come? At what point does it come? Does it come at baptism? When, the, when does God fill you with the baptism of the Spirit? Do you have it just because you repented of your sins? Or, or, or do you feel differently when you have it? Is there, is there a special unction or anointing that happens when you get it? Do you cry when you get it? Do you get happy when you get it? Like, what happens when you get it? Or do you feel nothing at all? Uh, do you get it because you came down to a Billy Graham crusade and you said the sinner's prayer and, and, and said the words that, that Billy Graham told you to say? Is that when God fills you with the baptism of the Spirit? Or is it some other time? Now, we believe that the baptism of the Spirit comes when you are... When you speak with other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance. Now, you may not agree with that if you're a guest here or even if you've been coming here for a while. But bear with me and keep an open mind because we are going to go through the Scriptures. And I hope that you will at least be open to hearing what we have to say regarding that. So, now, Jesus said that the Spirit bore witness that he as a man was the Son of God. So, to state the obvious, if Jesus needed that witness of the Spirit, so do we. You better have that witness of the Spirit. 
And that's precisely Paul's point in Romans 8 and 16. The Spirit of God bears witness with our human spirit that we are the sons of God and that we belong to Him. In, in matter of fact, earlier on in Romans 8, he said, If any man does not have that spirit, he is none of his. That means you do not belong to, to God unless that spirit is inside of you and you have been baptized into it. Okay? Now, how does that spirit bear witness then? In what way? Okay? At the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, where the apostles are meeting to discuss if the Gentiles who had recently been saved and put into the body of Christ, the question was, do the Gentiles need to keep the law like the Jews kept it? Okay? Do they need to keep the law of Moses in the same way as the Jewish believers? Now, that's another Bible study for another time. But Acts 15, we're going to read verse 7, says, And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. So Peter, who had, you know, you remember the story of Cornelius in Acts 10. They had, and we'll read that in just a minute. But the Holy Spirit was a witness that the Gentiles had been accepted by God in the same way that the Jewish believers had. Now this was a revelation for Peter and for the entire Jewish world. Because the Jews did not uh, believe that the Gentiles could ever be saved. I mean, sure, God loves everybody, but the Jews only are, are called and special. So for about, what, 10 chapters from Acts 2, 8 chapters, from Acts 2 to Acts chapter 10, the Spirit of God and salvation was literally to the Jew first, as Paul said in Romans. And then later it was also to the Gentiles. So furthermore, Peter said that they had received it just like the Jews had in Acts 2. He said, God literally put no difference between us and them, and he gave them the same witness as he gave us. So what was that witness, and how did the Jewish believers receive it? In Acts 2 and verse 1 says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire that sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. You remember in the Old Testament, what was the sign or symbol of God's presence by night over the camp of Israel? Pillar of fire. And that same pillar of fire is now resting on, on the Jewish believers. And it's interesting that it says that it was cloven tongues. I've looked up this word cloven. It just means divided tongues. So it, it literally means that there was a tongue of fire. A tongue of fire that sat upon each of them. Remember whenever, uh, whenever Jesus came to be baptized by John the Baptist? And, and John the Baptist said, you know, there comes one after me. I baptize you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And at the time, they didn't have any understanding of what that meant. But truly, our God is a consuming fire. That fire is a purifying fire. Amen. And you're either going to be purified by Holy Ghost fire or by hellfire. But that hellfire is not going to purify you, my friend. 
There's no escaping your sins once you draw your last breath. So you have to be purified by this spirit fire. And so this was a symbol to everybody that the presence of God was no longer over a physical building as the veil had been rent in two from the top to the bottom. And no doubt they had tried to repair it, perhaps, but, but there, was, there was no putting God back in that tabernacle. Instead, as Stephen said, God doesn't dwell in temple made with hands. So they received it by speaking with tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance or gave them the witness. Okay, That was the witness of the Spirit that they had been filled with God's own presence. Now look at Acts 10. To the Jewish believers, that happened, and the same experience happened to the Gentiles. In Acts 10, verse 44, while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word, and they of the circumcision, that's, that's Jewish, which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter. So Peter has just preached to them the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you believe that Romans 10.9 is the plan of salvation, which says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You need to compare that to what Paul told the Corinthians when he said, I came not only but to preach the Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the gospel. Going back a few lessons now, what is the gospel? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul told the Corinthians, this is, what I, this is what I came to preach. Others did the baptizing. I just came to preach the gospel, and the Spirit fell, and people were baptized, but others probably, without question, would have done the baptizing. So it was, it was, that, it was that gospel that they had to believe first. And once they believed the gospel... Then the spirit fell. You can reference, cross-reference that to Acts 2 and Acts 10. Peter basically preached almost identical messages. And the message was this. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. And when they believed that, what happened? Lifting up their hands, thank you, Jesus, I believe in that. And just like that, the spirit fell on them. As it had on them at the beginning. The beginning of what? Peter, Peter called it the beginning. The beginning of the church. When did the church begin? When was the church? When did the church start? The New Testament church. It started in Acts two. That's why Peter called it the beginning. Okay. So the Holy Ghost is a witness. Hebrews ten and fifteen says, "Which whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us." For after that he had said before, the Spirit of God is the single most powerful force in the universe. Nothing can even begin to compare with that, and you've got that inside you. Powerful, more powerful than water, more powerful than fire, it's more powerful than some big giant black hole. You've got God inside you. You've got the God that created all those things. Amen. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. Amen. Amen. So let's go back to the book of Genesis for just a few minutes. Look with me to Genesis 11 and 9. Therefore is the name of it called Babel. Because the Lord did confound or confuse the language of all the earth. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Babel does not mean confusion. As I preached for many years until I actually looked it up. Uh, but there's a reason why people think it means confusion. And it's this verse right here. Because it says the name was called Babel because there the Lord confused their languages. So it made sense. But look at this word in the Hebrew. Look at this next slide. There are two words in the Hebrew. One is Babel, which means Babel, and the other one is Babel, 
which means confusion. So this word, this word Babel is, is the word Babel, whereas Babel is the Hebrew word for confusion. So obviously they sound like literally almost exactly alike. Now, if you're a Jew, remember it was the Babylonians that held Israel in captivity for many years. And they hated them. And they hated the Assyrians because they were uncircumcised, because they treated them like dirt, because they, they uh, you know, burned their city down. And so, so to the Hebrews, they would make fun of the Babylonians and they would say, Babel, Babel. It's confusion. So Babel does not mean confusion. But they sound alike. That's why it says, therefore, the name of it is called Babel, because it sounds like Babel. You understand? Okay. So the Lord scattered them. So think of it for a second. Why would Nimrod, who founded the city of Babel, name his own city Confusion? Unless he was, didn't know where he was at. Now that happens sometimes. <laughs> My wife is smiling, not saying a word. Look at, Rome, look at Genesis 10, verse 8. It says, And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That doesn't mean he was a deer hunter. It means that, that, that he was in rebellion against God. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. Now, the real meaning of, of Babel. Um, actually, it's, you know, the, the word Babel itself is, is, is in the ancient Sumerian language, and it's not easy to, to read. But most people believe the name of it is, is called Gate of God. Now, that makes more sense. Nimrod founded a place. He called it the Gate of God because he was entangled with deep spiritual rebellion. Remember what Satan's initial desire was. I'm going to be like the Most High. I'm going to, be, I'm going to sit upon the mountain of the congregation, the sides of the north. I'm going to do all this. I'm going to be like God. I'm going to sit in heaven as God. So, so this satanic desire to build a, a tower in the city that was called the gate of God. So they believed that in Genesis 11, they wanted to build a tower to reach up to heaven. They believed Babel was the place of the gate that led to heaven. Thus, the building of that tower in that place called the gate of God. And Babel, later called Babylon, as I said, where also where the Jews were held in captivity, so they would call it confusion. And it was kind of a way for them to make fun of it. The gate of God was where God separated their languages, so they had to be scattered. Thus, some people say it means confusion. And in the New Testament, we find another gate of God. Look at Psalms 24 and verse 7, because he prophesied about this, David, where he said, Lift up your head, O ye gates. Everybody say gates. The gates. The gates of what? The gates where the, where the Messiah would come through in the city of Jerusalem. And be lift up ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory, Selah. David said that when the King comes through those gates, he will be the King of glory. But in a spiritual sense, this prophesies about how the king comes through our doors. Remember when Jesus said in Revelation, I stand at the door and I knock. Now, you know, we know that it means that he's knocking at our heart's door. So the door is the heart, but the gate is the tongue. That's why 
the gate of God, he split the tongues, he divided the tongues. But in the New Testament, when he comes through the gates, he's going to unite you to another body. A body of Christ, a family of God. 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 says, For by one spirit have we all been baptized into one body. When you are baptized into that body, he takes the solitary and he puts you in a family. A family of God. Praise God. And so, so the allusion in this text in Psalms is made to the triumphal entry of a victorious general into an imperial city. It was a victorious waltz that the general made into a conquered city completely taking control over that city. And when God gives you the Holy Ghost, what was once a hostile enemy of God, which is your flesh, you surrender to him and you repent of those old sins and you turn and give authority over your life to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and you become conquered and you become his servant. The king comes through the gates and sin becomes conquered. Amen. So whenever they began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them the utterance, it was the Spirit coming in through the gates. Later on in Genesis 11, we find another gate. Uh, In the book of Genesis chapter 28, look at this. This is whenever Jacob is fleeing from his brother, from his brother Esau, and he comes to this place called Bethel, which means house of God. In Genesis 28 and verse 11, and he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and laid them down on that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And Jacob awaked out of his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. I don't, I don't think that Jacob had Nimrod in mind when he said gate of heaven. But I think there is an allusion to this that God was saying Nimrod thought he found the gate of God. But the real gate is this place that Jacob found. What was Jacob's dream about? It was about a ladder and angels going up and down upon that ladder. And at a time when Jacob must have felt far from God, and at a time when he felt he was fully living up to his own name, which meant deceiver, God gave him a prophetic dream. And the fulfillment of it is in John chapter 1 in verse 49. And look at what the Bible says. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You will find greater, you will see greater things than these. And he said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you hereafter, you shall see heaven opened. And the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. You see, Nathaniel got a revelation of what Jacob had in his dream. That what Jacob couldn't get to, what could only dream about, Nathaniel was seeing before his very eyes. A ladder or a, or a, or a person that would get you to God. A gate, if you will. A ladder, a highway to heaven. Amen. Jesus said, I am the only way to heaven. I am the way. I am the truth, I am the life, I am the door, I am the shepherd. He is the only way. And so, so he was dreaming about him. So when you get his spirit, that's the rest 
that the prophets prophesied about. That's the rest that they talked about. There's a rest that's coming, not a rest that Israel had whenever they came into the land of Canaan. It wasn't a rest from all their enemies, but it was a spiritual rest. It's a rest from depression. It's a rest uh, from your lack of peace. It's a, uh, amen, it's a rest from, uh, from, being, from being bound in sin and from alcoholism. That's the rest that he's talking about. Amen. But you got to let the king come in through the gates. You got to stop fighting this and just let God take control. Amen. You got to lift your hands and say, Lord, I give you everything. God's not interested in the layaway plan. A little here and a little there. It's all or nothing with God. From Isaiah 28 and verse 11, as I close, we stand. He said, From a stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people, to whom he said, This is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. Isaiah said, when you see stammering lips and another tongue come on the people of God, that is the rest that God said he has promised would come to his own people. And in Acts 2, they lifted their hands up after praying for 10 days, and the Spirit began to fall, and they began to, uh, to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. My friend, you might have a theological argument, 10,000 reasons why you don't want to talk in tongues. But you know what? There's about 100 million people on planet Earth that would say, you got an argument, but I got an experience. And while you're arguing about it over there in the corner somewhere, I'm over here lifting my hands and with tears streaming down my face. I know it's real because I experienced it, and so can you. Praise God. Lift your hands right now. Thank you, Jesus.